bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, November 29th, 2011. I'm going to start this week's podcast with a brief postmortem on the collapse of the Super Committee and provide a glimpse into what's in store for the next four weeks. From there, I have some exciting news about Treasury's new issue bond program and the temporary credit and liquidity program. Then, in our local housing tax credit section, I'll provide a sneak peek of the fiscal year 2012 income limits that HUD will release this Thursday. I'll also provide an update on the ongoing battle of redevelopment agencies in California. In our historic tax credit section, I'll show the latest development in the historic Boardwalk Hall case, and I'll also provide some analysis of a report on the Minnesota Historic Rehabilitation Tax Credit. Then, I'll talk about an award-winning initiative that's in Vermont. This initiative has spurred village-scale historic preservation projects. In our New Market Tax Credit section, I'll tell you about the results of an audit that the Treasury's Office of the Inspector General recently completed on the CDFI fund. This audit provides some interesting insight into the New Market Tax Credit Program's activities. I'll also tell you about the new Invest Ohio state tax credit. In our Renewable Energy Tax Credit segment, I'll discuss a new bill that was introduced this month to provide an investment tax credit for microturbines. And finally, I'll wrap up with some good news about the treatment of Section 1603 grants in California. If you're ready, let's get started. In general tax credit news, we start with a brief postmortem on the collapse of the Super Committee. With that collapse, we now turn to the end of the year, and we look at what legislative matters are likely to occupy both the House and the Senate's attention between now and the end of the year. For one, we do have the extenders, most notably for our listeners, extension of the new market tax credit. That's about a 30 to $40 billion cost. There's also what's commonly referred to as the dock fix, and that would be $22 billion, give or take. The two big items that are receiving a lot of press coverage are extension of the unemployment insurance. That expires for a large number of beneficiaries at the end of this year. The cost of extending unemployment insurance benefits for them would be $44 billion. And then there's the much-talked-about payroll tax cut of roughly $110 billion. That's to continue the existing cut in the payroll tax for employees only. So all told, you have well over $200 billion. And if you threw in a few other items, you get even more than that. That's a 10-year cost. So between now and the end of the year, look for all those items to get a lot of coverage. And the big question will be how to pay for them. Will Congress either extend some of these items and not pay for it, or will they raise taxes? This week, the Senate is expected to propose extending the payroll tax cut through a tax on millionaires. That effort is expected to fail, and then we'll start to see more serious discussions between the House, 
the Senate, and the President. So stay tuned to future podcasts and to my Twitter feed in order to stay up to date on what's happening with these discussions as we rapidly approach the end of the year. Now to turning more positive news, last week we learned that the U.S. Department of the Treasury had extended the new issue bond program and the temporary credit and liquidity program. The programs are known as the NIBP program for the new issue bond program and the TCLP for the temporary credit and liquidity program. They're both parts of the stimulus funding that was provided through the Housing and Economic Recovery Act, or HERA. Now, as listeners may recall, NIBP provides temporary financing for housing agencies so they can issue mortgage revenue bonds for single and multifamily housing. The TCLP program, on the other hand, provides additional credit and liquidity for housing finance agencies, or HFAs. Both programs are set to expire at the end of this year. Fortunately, though, now HFAs will be able to use their NIBP allocations until December 31, 2012, and the TCLP amounts until December 31, 2015. Now, I note there are no new allocations here. It's only an extension of time to use existing allocations. Now, the National State Housing Agencies has reported that Treasury has eliminated the requirement that HFAs issue market bonds in conjunction with single-family issues and, most significantly, will allow HFAs to use single-family allocations for multifamily activities. This is particularly big news in the state of California. Additionally, Treasury is establishing a new rate-setting system for NIBP bonds based on the weighted average life of the bonds being issued. So what's the catch? Well, Treasury will also begin charging an additional credit premium of 80 basis points on new multifamily NIBP bonds and impose a 30 basis points per year redemption fee on NIBP funds that are redeemed after April 1, 2012. Now we note that since Treasury no longer has authority to undertake the program under HERA, it needed to collect fees to offset the cost of the extension, hence some of the fees I just mentioned. At the time of this recording, Treasury has not yet issued a release about the program's extension. However, uh, there is a, a report that Treasury planned to hold a webinar on the program today at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. I'll tweet the news about that extension recording soon as I have the details. Now, HFAs interested in modifying the terms of their participation in the two programs have to submit an election modification letter to Treasury via email by December 9, 2011. If you want to see a copy of the election letter and the NIBP and TCLP extension term sheets, simply go to the Hot Topics section under HERA at www.novoco.com. And if you have any questions about the program, I'd encourage you to contact my partner, Tony Grapponi, in our Boston, Massachusetts office. In low-income housing tax credit news, as I promised in last week's podcast, I have a preview of the 2012 income limits for low-income housing tax credit properties. The U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development is scheduled to release the rent income limits in just two days. HUD set the December 1st release date for the income limits back in September when they announced the fair market rents, or FMRs, for fiscal year 2012. So here's what HUD had to say about the fiscal year 2012 income limits. 
the area median income growth rate is equal to the change in the consumer price index between December 2009 and December 2010. That percentage change is 1.4%. So the area median income will increase 1.4% for all counties. Very low income will also experience a 1.4% increase, except in counties affected by high or low housing costs. Since multifamily tax subsidy projects, or MTSPs, follow the very low income limits, they will generally have a 1.4% increase. Harris special income limits will also have a 1.4% increase because they're indexed to the 1.4% change in area median income. Now I'd like to remind listeners that MTSPs, unlike Section 8 properties, are still subject to the hold harmless provisions. Hold harmless counties may have an increase in income limits if the amount the county was held harmless at is less than the 1.4% and it's not a high-cost county. The effective date for HUD's fiscal year 2012 income limits will be the same as the December 1 release date. HUD does expect to release income limits on December 1st of each year for the foreseeable future. Now, when HUD does release these income limits on Thursday, we will post them to the Affordable Housing Resource Center, which you can access at www.taxtrohousing.com. We're also in the process of updating our rent and income limit calculator. For any questions in the interim, feel free to contact my partner, Jim Kroger, in the San Francisco office or contact Thomas Stagg in San Francisco as well. And now let's travel to California for the latest in the ongoing battle on California's redevelopment agencies. As you may remember from previous Tax Credit Tuesday podcasts, California's 2011-2012 budget included two trailer bills that would effectively eliminate redevelopment agencies effective August 1, 2011, unless the agencies make specified contributions to local school and special districts. According to the Redevelopment Association, Fund contributions would amount to $1.7 billion in this fiscal year and $400 million each year thereafter. In response to the bills, the California Redevelopment Association, on July 15th, filed a petition for writ of mandate that challenges the constitutionality of the trailer bills. These bills are known as ABX-126 and ABX-127. There was also an application for temporary stay that would prevent the dissolution of redevelopment agencies while the case is pending. The California Supreme Court announced on August 11th that it would grant the temporary stay and would hear the case. Now, on November 10th, the two sides presented their oral arguments to the court. The arguments lasted about an hour, and the court promised to decide on the case before January 15th. The case is known as California Redevelopment Association versus Mato Santos. Turning to historic news, for some time, we've been following Historic Boardwalk Hall LLC versus Commissioner. As regular listeners know, the Boardwalk Hall case concerns the rehabilitation of the East Hall of the Atlantic City, New Jersey Convention Center. The U.S. Tax Court ruled that the partnership formed to invest in the project was not, that's right, was not a sham lacking economic substance and ruled it was entitled to claim historic rehabilitation tax credits under Section 47. The Internal Revenue Service has appealed that decision, and that appeal is progressing. Now, the court has granted an extension until December 15, 2011, 
for the taxpayer briefs in the appeal. You can learn more about the latest developments in the case by reading Historic Tax Credit Coalition founder John Lee Tetrell's History in the Hill column in the December issue of the Journal of Tax Credits. And if you're not already receiving the Journal of Tax Credits, I encourage you to give it a try. Just send an email to products at novaco.com and we'll send you a free trial copy. You can also check out the IRS brief and related materials on our website at www.historictaxcredits.com. And if you want more details about the case or how the case might affect your transaction, contact my partner Tom Bosha in our Cleveland, Ohio office. Now, I have some information for you from an economic impact report that the University of Minnesota Extension Center for Community Vitality has released. It's on the state's historic rehabilitation tax credit. The report is titled, Economic Impact of Projects Leveraged by the Minnesota Historic Rehabilitation Tax Credit. The report analyzes the direct, indirect, and induced impacts that the tax credit is having on Minnesota's economy. The Minnesota legislature requires the Minnesota Historical Society to provide an annual report on the credit's economic impact. The Historical Society contracted with the University of Minnesota Extension Center to collect and analyze data for projects using the 20% state tax credit. Only projects that had received preliminary approval for the credit had begun renovation and had received their National Park Service Part 2 certification between April 2010 and June 30, 2011, were included in the study. There were 14 projects that met this criteria. The study reported the following economic impact from the 14 projects. Total direct, indirect, and induced impacts for projects leveraged by the Minnesota Historic Tax Credit are $450 million in output and 2,948 workers employed. These amounts include $250 million in new construction-related sales, 1,808 new construction jobs, and nearly $84 million in payments to construction workers. There was $96.3 million in indirect output through sales, including 532 jobs in all sectors, and nearly $35 million in payments to those workers. And then there were induced impacts of $104 million in sales, and that included 608 jobs in all sectors and $34 million in payments to those workers. Now, an estimated $49.1 million in tax credits will be awarded by the state if all of the projects meet the program requirements. This translates into leverage of $451 million in total economic impact. That's $9.20 in economic activity for every $1 of tax credit. Now, the study also found a few project trends. Projects were primarily in the Minneapolis and St. Paul areas. Two projects were in northern Minnesota. Five of the projects were residential, five were commercial, and four were mixed-use developments. Now, it should be noted that the study only examined construction-related spending, and it did not include any impacts that are anticipated to be generated by the commercial use of the renovated buildings. The economic impacts are also contingent on all of the projects reaching completion and actually claiming the credits. Now, it'll be interesting to see the continuing impacts of the program as it matures. The first report noted that in prior years, an average of four projects used the federal historic tax credit each year in Minnesota. That's compared to the 14 projects that had obtained preliminary approval between April 2010 and June 30, 2011. The report does say that this is indicative of the state historic tax credit's effect on deciding whether or not to rehabilitate an historic building. 
You can find a copy of the report at www.historictaxcredits.com. Simply go to the reports page. Next, I'd like to share some news about historic preservation in the Northeast. A Vermont initiative that has spurred village-scale historic preservation projects across the state was recognized earlier this month with the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation's Chairman's Award for Achievement in Historic Preservation. The Village Revitalization Initiative is a partnership among U.S. Senator Patrick Leahy, the Preservation Trust of Vermont, and the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and it uses federal grants to leverage investments in historic rehabilitation projects. In its first six years, the initiative supported 27 projects in 25 communities, using $2.4 million federal investment to help leverage more than $27 million in total project costs. Now, Senator Leahy, Yolanda Chavez of HUD's community, uh, or Office of Community Planning and Development, and Paul Bruin, the Executive Director of the Vermont Preservation Trust, accepted the award at the AHCHP's Fall Business Meeting. Now let's take a look at the New Market Tax Credit Program. On November 15th, the Office of the Inspector General of the Treasury Department released an audit of the Community Development Finance Institutions, or CDFI, Fund's fiscal years 2010 and 2011 financial statements. Included in that audit was a review of the New Market Tax Credit Program. The review included information about the first eight allocation rounds and program activities to date, as well as the 2010-2011 allocation rounds and aggregate awards. Now, overall, the NMTC program from 2003 to 2010 has financed over 1,500 businesses and has provided nearly $21 billion in qualified investments. It's also created or preserved over 97,000 jobs and financed over 5,000 housing units and created nearly $93 million, or million square feet, I should say, of commercial real estate. Some of the OIG's findings include that the CDFI fund to date has allocated a total of $29.5 billion in allocation authority, and it has made 594 awards, with the average award during the first eight rounds being approximately $50 million. Also, just under one in three of the applicants who were selected, or who applied, I should say, were selected to receive an award. That's during the first eight rounds. Now, during the 2010 round, the OIG noted 97 of 99 allocatees indicated that 100% of their investments would be in the form of equity, equity equivalents, or debt. That's at least 50% below market, or is characterized by at least five concessionary features. They also noted that all 99 allocatees committed to providing at least 75% of their investments to areas of higher economic distress than minimally required by the NMTC program, as well as all 99 allocatees indicating that they would invest more than the minimally required 85% of qualified investment dollars into qualified low-income community investments. For the 2011 round, the CDFI fund, as most of the listeners know, received 314 applications, an increase of just over 25% from 2010. And as of September 30th, 2011, allocatees reported raising qualified equity investments of nearly $24 billion. In calendar year 2010 alone, $4.9 billion in equity investments were raised. The audit also notes research that the Urban Institute has been conducting on the New Market Tax Credit Program since 2007. 
the city of Haifa has contracted with the Urban Institute since 2007 to conduct a review of relevant economic development, performance, measurement, and tax credit literature, as well as to engage in informal discussions with new market tax credit stakeholders, to analyze existing new market tax credit administrative data, to develop a typology of new market tax credit projects, to examine secondary public and private data, and to conduct a random sample of case study data collection. The Urban Institute is expected to present its final report on the New Market Test Credit Program to the CDFI Fund in February 2012. Now, to read more about the OIG's audit, visit the New Market Test Credit Resource Center at www.newmarketscredits.com. In turning to state tax credit matters, this month, the Ohio Department of Development announced the procedures to qualify for the new Invest Ohio tax credit. The $100 million program was enacted over the summer and provides a 10% income tax credit for investing up to $10 million in eligible small businesses. Investors must acquire an ownership interest in the business and hold their investment for two years before claiming the credit. To apply, first the investor and the small business must register through the Ohio Business Gateway. Then, one of the parties must complete an application, and that application will be available in the first week of December. The credits will be awarded on a first-come, first-served basis. That's until the state's fiscal biennium ends on June 30, 2013. During that two-year period, the Department of Development expects that InvestOhio will generate at least $1 billion in private investment in the state's small businesses. Now, if you're interested in learning more about the program, I invite you to call my partner, Annette Stevenson, in the Novogratic Cleveland, Ohio office. The number there is 216-736-736. 4100. In renewable energy tax credit news, we have news about a bill that would expand the investment tax credit to include microturbine technology. U.S. Representative Linda Sanchez introduced H.R. 3394 called the American Microturbine Manufacturing Clean Energy Deployment Act, and it would make microturbine technology eligible for the investment tax credit. Microturbines are smaller versions of the large turbines used in base-load electro-generating stations, and they typically produce between 25 and 500 kilowatts of power. Expanding the 30% renewable energy investment credit to microturbine technology would create more than 2,000 jobs almost immediately, according to Representative Sanchez's office. If the bill is enacted, Representative Sanchez's office estimated that enough new microturbines could be placed in service within the credit's first year to offset 170,000 tons of carbon dioxide emissions. You can find the text of H.R. 3394 online at www.energytaxcredits.com. And we wrap up today with some positive news for those using Section 1603 grants to develop renewable energy projects in California. Potentially conflicting legislation in California has called into question whether Section 1603 grants will retain their non-taxable status for California state income tax purposes. As listeners may recall, California's passage of SB 401 last year made California one of the first states to explicitly exclude Section 1603 grant payments from gross income for state tax credit purposes. However, Many industry participants believe that ambiguous language that was contained in Proposition 26, which is also known as the Supermajority Vote to Pass New Taxes and Fees Act, potentially overturned SB 401. 
to conform SB 401 provisions to Proposition 26, the legislature needed to pass SB 401 by no less than a two-thirds vote before November 3rd. Now, unfortunately, the legislature failed to take such action. The good news is, nonetheless, California's Franchise Tax Board released guidance earlier this month stating that it still views SB 401 as valid law and that it will continue to apply the bill's provisions for the 12-month period following the adoption of Proposition 26. Furthermore, the Franchise Tax Board, FTB, determined that the state's constitution requires it to enforce SB 401 until an appellate court voids all or part of SB 401. Now, we'll continue to monitor the situation, so stay tuned for more updates. And in the meantime, you can contact my partner, Stephen Tracy, in our San Francisco office if you have any questions about how this issue could affect your project. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another Task Grad Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik & Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novoco.com podcast or by subscribing to the Novogratik Report on tax credits in iTunes. Novogratik & Company, LLP, is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with 13 offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.